Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Goes to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. And by the way, next Sunday, um, our kids will be performing some songs, some Christmas songs. And so that will be a fun time always in the life of our church to see our children who've been preparing all these weeks to sing. And so come next week in preparation to hear from them and to worship the Lord. Genesis chapter 49. I want you to help me by saying the words from this famous movie. We'll all say it together. Lions and tigers and bears. Okay, good. You're awake this morning. Lions and tigers and bears. I didn't didn't expect you to be that awake. That's pretty good. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Now, how many of you, by show of hands, have been to the the big cat reserve out by Keensburg and Hudson, where you've seen the big animals? I have not been out there yet, but I heard it's kind of a cool place where you can see animals in their natural habitats. And, And I love big cats. I love big cats. Like when you go to the Denver Zoo and you first walk in, they have the the lion display there in the Denver Zoo where you can get up close to the plexiglass and you can see their huge manes and you can can hear them roaring. It's exciting. Back in December of 2007, Tatiana got in trouble. Big trouble. You may be asking, who's Tatiana? She's a 350-pound Siberian tiger in the San Francisco Zoo. Right after closing time, she attacked three people, mauled one person to death. This was not the first time that she got in trouble. Uh, A year before that, she attacked one of her um, zookeepers on the arm during a time of feeding. And so when you think about big cats, they're kind of dangerous. They're kind of scary. In Tanzania right now, in the country of Tanzania, in Africa, lion attacks are on the rise. From 1990 to 2005, more than 563 people were killed by lions, which really means that about 40 people die a year in Tanzania to lion attacks. Anybody here want to meet a lion face-to-face on the savanna of Africa or in a dark alley. None of us here want to come face to face with lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, you're alive. You're good. Now you may ask the question, why do I draw your attention to a lion? A roaring lion. Well, as we come to Genesis chapter 49, we see this imagery of a lion. Now, Jacob is on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, Jacob calls all of his sons together for one last request. And in chapter 49, Jacob is going to pronounce prophetic messages upon his sons. And only two of his sons really have a lot of length and good things to say. Judah... And Joseph, the rest of the sons, don't really have a lot of good things that Jacob says about them. But what I want us to do is I really want us to focus in on Judah this morning. But I want to draw your attention to a huge question we've been asking all through Genesis. 
And it goes all the way back to the beginning when we started this about a year and a half ago. Genesis 3.15, the most important verse in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, when the, the fall of Adam and Eve happens after that, God pronounces this prophetic curse upon Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. It's a message that God says in the future there's going to be a Messiah. There's going to be a coming king who's going to rule and to reign and he's going to crush Satan once and for all. It's going to come from the lineage of a woman. And we've seen this question and we've seen this tension all throughout Genesis. How's it going to happen? How is the seed of the woman going to come about? Because right from the beginning, Cain kills Abel. God has to destroy the world in the flood. And leaves one family, Noah. We wonder how it's going to happen because Abraham and Sarah can't have kids. Jacob is almost hunted down and killed by Esau. And then as we've seen in our story with Joseph, the entire family almost dies of starvation because of the famine. But Joseph is elevated as savior of his family. And so the looming question comes is how? How is God going to ensure that the seed of the woman, the coming Messiah, will crush the head of the serpent? Another way to ask it is, how is God going to do it through this mixed-up family? This crazy mixed-up family of Jacob and his sons. It's going to come through Judah. Judah emerges as the leader of Israel. And through Judah's lineage comes King David. And eventually, through Judah's lineage, comes King Jesus. And what we have here in Genesis 49 are prophetic blessings upon Judah that are direct prophecies in relationship to Jesus Christ, our Lord. But before we look at that, let's just ask some questions about Judah. How does Judah start in the book of Genesis? He doesn't start very well, does he? He was the ringleader who basically manipulated his brothers into selling Joseph into slavery so that they could make a good, mu- a good buck, make money, make a profit. And then in the next chapter, he's the sexual crazed man who has uh, sex with his daughter-in-law when she's dressed as a prostitute. And so Judah doesn't start out well. He's a manipulating, money-grabbing sex fiend. But then he encounters amazing grace and God begins to change his heart. And Judah emerges as the sacrificial substitute willing to lay down his life on behalf of his brothers. And he's the one that reunites Jacob and Joseph together after all these years. And so Judah emerges as the leader of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's not the firstborn son. He's the fourthborn son. So let's look at the text. I just want to look at Judah's blessing. If you go through Genesis 49, it goes in order of the boys. So you've got Reuben and Simeon and Levi, but then we get to Judah. And I want us to focus in on verses 8 through 12. Just the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah. So Genesis 49, 8 through 12. 
on his deathbed. Actually, let's start out in verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So he gathers all of his sons together and begins to pronounce these prophetic blessings upon them. And let's get to verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now we see a double prophecy here. There's a prophecy related directly to King David, but ultimately there's a prophecy related to King David. Jesus. And what's the first image we see here? We see Judah called a lion, a powerful lion. In the Bible and even in today's culture, what is a lion a symbol of? A lion is a symbol of power, majesty, kingly authority. So Judah is going to emerge as this lion king, if you will. And notice what it says about him there. It says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is what a king would rule with. And then it says, the ruler's staff between his feet. So here is a prophecy that from the lineage of Judah would come the kings of Israel, ultimately King David. And if you fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you've got what's called the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant with the house of David to establish his kingship. And so when you read 2 Samuel 7, 16, You find these words of the Lord to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes a promise to David that his throne would be established forever. But if you read the rest of your Old Testament, you realize that there's bad king after bad king after bad king. How is this going to happen? Well, ultimately it comes in Christ being the ultimate son of Judah, the ultimate son of David, to rule on his throne. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about King Jesus. Hebrews 1.8 But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've got the imagery of the scepter. You've got the imagery of the throne given to the son, King Jesus. So what I want you to look at here There are four prophecies about King Jesus right here in Genesis 49 that find their fulfillment not only in Christmas in Bethlehem, not only in the life of Jesus, but ultimately in eternity. So let's look at these four prophecies this morning and see how they relate to King Jesus. Here's the first. All nations will bow in obedience to him. Do you see the second half of verse 10 there? And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
the peoples. In the Hebrew text, it's really translated the nations. Not just the Jews will come and bow down to to David or bow down to, to Jesus, but the nations of the earth will bow down to King Jesus. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 12? In Genesis 12, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And so in this prophecy, we have a missionary mandate to go to the nations so that they will bow down to King Jesus. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? His very last words to his disciples, what does Jesus say about the nations? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. See if this sounds like a king giving command to his troops to go to the nations. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why has all authority been given to Jesus? He's the king. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All the nations. All the people groups, all the nations of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go to the nations. Why do we go to the nations? So this prophecy will be fulfilled that all the nations will bow before Jesus. What does Philippians 2, 9-11 through say? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the end game of God's plan. That all nations will bow before King Jesus. And so what's our role in that? How do we participate in that? We have a heart for missions. We have a heart for the nations. We go to the nations. We give to the Lockheed Moon Christmas offering. We have missions at the forefront of what we do, especially unreached people groups. I haven't talked about unreached people groups in a long time, but we have adopted an unreached people group in India. What is a a people group? You may say, well, what's a people group? What's what's an ethne is the Greek word there for nations. A people group is a group of people that 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 are bound together by a common language and a common ethnicity and a common custom. And they live together in a geographic area and they are called a people group. Do you know, according to the International Mission Board and to the Joshua Project and to Operation World, a lot of missions organizations, how many unreached people groups are in the world. Now, what do I mean by unreached? When I say unreached, I mean that less than 5% of that people group is Christian, which means over 95% of the people group is pagan. How many unreached people groups are there in the world? 7,000 unreached people groups. Of those 7,000, 1,716 are between 0.01 and 2% Christian. That's our people group in India. Let me give you some perspective on this. 7,000 people groups without Jesus, it's 42% of the world's population. Just less than 3 billion people on planet Earth right now with less than 5% Christian 
means no Bible in their language, no church planning movement, possibly no missionary, no access to the gospel, no Christian radio. Does that startle you? Let me give you some more information from the Joshua Project in Operation World. South Asia, which is India, in Bangladesh, has the most unreached people groups out of all the people groups that we talk about in the world. 3,000 people groups in India and South Asia that are lost. 1.57 billion people. That's why we target India as a church. Indonesia has 40 million people without a Bible in their language. Most of them are Muslim. 40 million. 65 to 70% of the world's population lives in religiously restrictive countries. The largest people group without any scripture in their language at all, no scripture in their language, is the Jin people of China, 62 million people. And there are some 458,000 villages in India with no known Christian presence. Those are the nations of our earth without Jesus. And so what's our vision as a church? We don't want these people bowing down to worship Allah. We don't want these people bowing down and worshiping a thousand million different Hindu gods. We don't want these people bowing down and worshiping Buddha. We want them to bow down and worship the true king, do we not? King Jesus. And so that's why we go and do missions. That's why we reach unreached people groups. So the end game is not just so they get saved. Yes, that's the awesome part of it. But the ultimate end game is they're saved so that they can bow before the one true king. And it's prophesied right here. All the peoples, all the nations will give him their obedience. Now there's a second prophecy here. And if this was an Easter sermon, it would fit in just great. It's a prophecy about Palm Sunday and Christ's triumphal entry. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Donkey's colt. A donkey's colt. Do you ever remember any image in the Bible of a king coming in riding on a donkey's colt? Maybe. Maybe like on Palm Sunday... Jesus comes into Jerusalem as king, riding on a donkey's colt. Listen to what Luke 19 says. Look at the, look at the kingly imagery here. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to weave together this imagery of Jesus as king and these prophecies and how they tie to the entire scriptures. Luke 19, 35 through 40. They brought it, that's the, that's the colt, to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love what Jesus says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What are they doing? They're bowing and they're calling Jesus king. 
They're giving him their worship. They're, they're seeing him as king, riding in on the donkeys called praise to the king, praise to the king. And the, and the disciples are yelling this and, and the Pharisees say, shut him up, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? If I can't even shut these people up, because if I were to shut these people up, inanimate stones are gonna cry out and worship the king because the creation worships the king. So here's my, here's my advice to you. Don't let the stones beat us. Don't let the stones cry out because we fail to cry out to King Jesus. Jesus says, even if we don't worship him, the stones, who knows how many times you're driving by and a rock is praising Jesus because we're failing to do so. Are we bowing and are we this excited for Jesus the King? Hosanna to the King. The King has come. Praise to the King. Jesus says, even if we don't praise him, the stones are going to cry out. So Jesus is the one to whom all the nations are going to bow. Jesus is the king that comes riding in on the donkey's colt on Palm Sunday. But Jesus also is, here's the third prophecy, Jesus will be the true vine. Notice what it says there in verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. There's this imagery of a vine. All throughout the Old Testament, the vine is really related to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is always considered the vine or the vineyard. But what does Jesus say about himself in John 15? What does Jesus say about the choice vine? Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus gives the imagery here of a vine. And so a vine receives its sustenance or the branch receives its sustenance from the vine. In the same way, we receive our sustenance from King Jesus when we abide in him. And what does it mean to abide? It just means to linger in his presence, to, to stay in his presence, to read his word, to, to stay connected to him, to, to cultivate that intimacy with him, to, to spend time with him. And as you spend time with Jesus, you receive that spiritual energy to bear fruit. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so as the true vine, Jesus says, abide in me. And so this Christmas, as we think about Jesus and all the imageries of Christmas, let's think about Jesus as the true, the choice vine, the vine that's, that's prophesied here in Judah, the choice vine. He's the true vine, the vine that we're going to get our sustenance from, the one that we're going to abide in. But finally, here's the final prophecy. Jesus will be the centerpiece of heaven forever. What have we seen so far in this prophecy for Judah? A lion ruling and all the nations bowing before him. Where do we see that at the end of the Bible? Where do we see a lion ruling and all the nations bowing before him? I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 in your Bibles. The last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy to Judah. It came true in the life of King David, but ultimately it comes true in the life of Jesus. And so I want us to read this entire passage of Scripture because to me, just reading Revelation 5 is an act of worship. 
But I want you to see the imagery of what John sees. In the very throne room of heaven, John sees Jesus, and how is he described, and what do we see? Do we see this prophecy coming true in heaven? Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Now wait a minute, John, what do you see? Do you see a lion or do you see a lamb? And the answer is yes. It's the lion lamb. The lion who has conquered and the lamb who has been slaughtered. As though it had been slaughtered, slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went, this is Jesus, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that is the Father. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from where? Every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That prophecy in Genesis 49 comes true in eternity when all of God's redeemed from all the nations will bow before King Jesus, who is the lion lamb. So what's your response to this? Would you bow? Don't wait till that day, as glorious as it's going to be to bow. Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't bow today to King Jesus, you won't be part of that great multitude bowing before him in heaven. Bow to him in repentance and faith today. Bow before the king. As we approach Christmas this year, I want you to think about the implications of Genesis chapter 3.15. Genesis 3.15 promises Christmas. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Mary births Jesus. Genesis 49 is a prophecy about Christmas because Jesus comes as 
the king in the line of Judah. Listen to the angelic announcement when the angel tells Mary that Jesus is going to be born to her. Listen to the wording that the angel uses and see if you cannot tell anything about what we've been talking about all along this morning. Luke 1, 30-33. Listen to the angelic announcement. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. What did Judah get? The ability to reign over the house of Jacob forever. What did David get? The throne because of the promise made to Judah. But listen to what it says. And as of his kingdom, there will be no end. Christmas is more than just a little baby being born in a manger and cute cuddly animals and a star. Those are important to the Christmas story. But do you realize that Christmas is a direct result of God's sovereign prophetic timetable of making a promise to Judah that he would be the lion of the tribe of Israel and through him would come King David and through King David would come King Jesus who would rule and who would reign. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let's just spend some time praising Jesus that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Praise Jesus that he rules from heaven with the scepter and the ruler's staff. Praise Jesus that one day all the nations will bow before him in glory. And praise him that he is the true vine, the choice vine, that provides sustenance for his people. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's come with joy. Let's come with awe. Let's come with excitement. Let's come with a serious reflection over the fact that God has made a promise in Genesis 3.15. He made it again in Genesis 49. He made it again in 2 Samuel 7. He made it again in Luke chapter 1. And he made it again in Revelation chapter 5. God is a consistent God from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, who says it's all about King Jesus and bowing before him. And the Lord's Supper is about bowing before our King and remembering our King. So let me ask you to do that this morning in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Would you bow your heads? And would you spend just a few moments in prayer, in thought, just reflecting and meditating and thinking about Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, in that image of all of us one day before the throne, bowing down in worship to him. Spend some time in prayer this morning in preparation. Would you remind us that we worship the king, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered and the lamb who was slaughtered. The only one worthy 
of all of our adoration, the only one worthy of all of our praise, the only one worthy in all of the universe to bow down and give our allegiance to. Would in these moments as we take the Lord's Supper be a refresh, a fresh encounter with you, Jesus, as our King. And in our hearts will we bow before you and would we be mindful of the mandate that we have to go to the nations Father, our passion is to see Bogota believers bowing down before you and not before Hindu gods. Father, our desire is to see Russians in Moscow bowing down before you as opposed to atheism and communism and whatever they believe in. And Father, we've taken trips to Nicaragua and to the villages and we pray that we see Villagers in in Nicaragua bowing down before you. And Father, we desire to see northeastern Colorado bowing down before you. You're the king. You deserve all glory. But we have a heart for the nations and a heart for you as we take this Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.